Well, greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. Uh, we have a lot to cover today. It's a stormy uh, day here in uh, Phoenix. Uh, I guess this is when we schedule winter in for two weeks. <laughs> Uh, because next week we are looking at, and I'm hearing myself for some reason. I'm not sure why that is. Um, and, uh, we, uh, next, I think by Monday, it's supposed to be 77 for a high here in Phoenix. I just thought I'd mention that to those of you who are still shivering and freezing wherever you're shivering and freezing at. Um, it's, uh, it's going to be nice here for a while. Anyway, um, last week sometime, I encountered a video. I have not uh, been able to uh, obtain videos from the uh, founders uh, thing on confessionalism yet. I've only seen clips uh, eventually when they're, you know, it's like G3 does too. You know, you, you have to wait for a couple months before stuff is actually available. And... Uh, so eventually we'll get around to it. But um, we had seen uh, advertised, announced uh, that uh, Credo and Matthew Barrett and the classical theology guys, by the way, everybody involved in these conversations um, believes in and promotes classical theology. <laughs> this is all a matter of emphasis, um, depth, and source. What are you going to emphasize? Um, how far are you going to go? And what is the source from which you're going to derive these things? These are what all the issues are, are about. And, um, but classical theology is just simply, that, that's a term that as far as I understand, um, was coined by open theists in opposition to the historical um, emphasis upon uh, the immutability of God, um, God's unchanging nature, um, all the all the discussions of the various omnis and ims and so on and so forth, which of course, open theists deny these things. They deny that God has, for example, exhaustive knowledge of all uh, future events. They would limit God's knowledge to and I don't even know how they do this, to be honest with you, at least consistently. They limit God's knowledge of the future events to what he himself is going to do. But if he interacts with man, how would he even know that? That would require knowing what men had done to require him to do the things that he does. I, I, I've always found open theism to be rather incoherent one way or the other. But anyway... But um, this, the, the debates that have been going on um, are all about points within the same realm. Um, we're all, we all affirm that there is, um, that classical theology is valid. Obviously, I can't reach it from where I am right now, but... Um, just a couple weeks ago, we had Jeffrey Johnson on. And so some of us are, you know, the, the, real, the real dispute, honestly, is uh, biblicism, uh, the relationship of scripture and tradition, the concept of the great tradition, uh, people promoting stuff like Christian Platonism, um, and concerns that many of us have that we are literally hearing people saying that you you need to have Aristotle's metaphysics to have the highest form of the doctrine of the Trinity, which uh, I will never accept. <laughs> um, if, if the doctrine of the Trinity is in fact revelation, first of all, if it's not revelation, we shouldn't believe it. No matter what's developed over time, if God has not revealed himself to exist in this fashion, and therefore to be worshipped in this way, then we shouldn't believe it. Um, so, uh, but, you know, to, to literally hear people saying that, you know, the highest form of the expression of the doctrine of the Trinity is to be found in the embracing of Thomas's metaphysics, which is really a Christianized version of Aristotelian metaphysics, um, is deeply troubling and should be deep, deeply troubling to, um, to all of us, really. 
Anyway, so the classical theology resourcement movement, it, it the way it's being advertised by people like Barrett and others is we've, we've just thrown it all out. Everybody in the 20th century is a bunch of dolts. And um, we are riding in to save the day and to um, get us back on track that, you know, cause we, we lost our way and it was, it's like everyone became open theists or something. And I'm just sort of like, yeah, you know, no, we didn't. Um, uh, you know, certainly I have criticized folks like William Lane Craig for a long time <laughs> um, for his neo-Apollinarianism and minimalistic Trinitarian theology. And uh, we have, I've debated open theists. Um, John Sanders is one of the leading voices in that movement. And we debated at Reformed Theological Seminary many, many years ago. He's still not happy about that, but that's another issue. Um, and uh, so, well, in fact, uh, you have to go to the archives now since Justin Barley has moved on. Uh, but the unbelievable webcast, um, the archives are still up. And uh, you'll be able to find, I, I think it may have been the last time I was on. Now think about it. We reprised the debate with John Sanders and he was significantly more aggressive than he had been originally. And part of the reason for that was he lost his job um, over that first debate. At least I think it was that one. We did two debates over a couple of days. One was on inclusivism. And then the other was on open theism. Um, but it was probably the open theism debate that, that led to that. Anyway, so we've been, we've been doing this for a long time. And Jeffrey Johnson, of course, his new book, you know, talks about a biblical classical theology versus a philosophical classical theology. And I think there is great merit in that. For me, it all comes back to what is the source? What are you deriving this from? What is driving this? And if we're going to continue to believe in Semper Reformanda, does that make any sense in your system? Uh, because it, it seems to me that I see um, Protestants undercutting their own foundation by embracing views of tradition in formulation of statements about the doctrine of God proper that they reject in regards to the doctrine of God, doctrine of the church, soteriology, everything else to be a Protestant is to have to subject the tradition that came out of the medieval period. And even in the early church to a biblical examination, otherwise you're not going to be a Protestant. <laughs> you're, just, you're not, you're, you're, you're going to have to change your views. Um, and the basis for our examination is always scripture. Anyway, um, Dr. Carl Truman was the opening speaker, the inaugural speaker at this conference, James Dolezal, Matthew Barrett, um, and um, the fellow from TGC, um, names escaping me at the moment, um, were the speakers at this particular get together. And so I listened and you know, there are just so many things that Carl Truman said that are insightful, useful. Um, one of the things that is truly uh, disturbing about this resourcement movement is it seems that those who are promoting it either don't listen to their critics or they just automatically block their critics, like Matthew Barrett has blocked me. Um, and as a result, it, it seems like they start believing stuff that just isn't true. So, um, you know, Craig Carter, you know, lied about me and said, I had said this, that, and I think, which, which I never had and everybody knew it, but you know, he doesn't seem overly concerned about that kind of stuff. And what concerns me is, uh, Dr. Truman and I had, uh, had a number of enjoyable encounters in the past. Uh, we had spoken together with Phil Johnson, um, in uh in the north northeast uh in up in new england and he and i had sort of stayed in contact for quite some time we were both uh, cycling fans 
And um, so we would um, text one another about what was going on, the Tour de France and, and stuff like that. And then I started hearing about oh, a year and a half, two years ago, this Neo-Socinian stuff. And it, it, it did seem like Dr. Truman was referring to me. And so I, I wrote to him, had a number of email addresses, including a Gmail address. And when I didn't hear back, because I was just basically asking, are you, are you talking about me? Because I'd like to talk about this. Are you, are you talking about me? Um, the phone number had changed, so I, I, I did try calling. Um, and then I just you know went online and found his, his uh, email address is not difficult to find at Grove City College. Uh, I went online, got that, sent the emails. He won't respond to me. Now, I, I would like to hope that, well, everything you wrote went into spam or whatever, and suppose it's possible. You know, you can, you can still hope for things like that. Uh, but it, there does seem to be, um, and, and I've speculated, uh, because Dr. Truman in this lecture talks about his coming out of where he used to be. He connects it to uh, writing a book on John Owen and Owen's use of Thomas Aquinas. And it, it's almost like for these guys, it's all around the same time period, 2016. Um, it, it, it's almost like a conversion. It, it, it very much reminds me of how a lot of Calvinists speak about becoming Calvinists or former Calvinists about becoming non-Calvinists. <laughs> um, but it's it's a little strange um, when you when you think about it, but you know I, I pray God's best for him, um, even if he won't talk to me. Um, and he he still has great great insights, um, and I wanted to, I wanted to play some of those great insights first before we look at the stuff that I wanted to interact with. And again, you'll notice how we're doing this. I'll be playing what he says. <laughs> the other side talks about what they heard someone saying about some unknown internet apologist guy. And you don't get, you know, meaningful interaction of coming from that side. But that's how we do it. And um, that way you can make decisions uh, for yourself. I think that's the important way to do it. Uh, the only thing I'll play from Barrett's introduction, um, and I will be playing this a little bit faster, uh, 1.2 not fast enough to cause any problems, but helps us get through the program a little faster, uh, is his reference to the great tradition, uh, just so that we have, have it in the court record, shall we say, uh, as to what the conference is all about and what this uh, emphasis upon classical theology is all about. So, uh, hoping, uh, we had real problems a um, couple, couple months ago when I used this program last, Fired up today and it worked just fine. But that was before we started the program. <laughs> and my experience is once it's live on the air, things change. That's how it. So we're, I'm going to click this button here and just really hope for the best. It exists to contemplate God and all things in relation to God by listening. And here's the key, the key part by listening with humility uh, to God's word, uh, along with the wisdom of the great tradition. Uh, the, the purpose really is to create a renewed vision for theology today in the spirit of faith-seeking understanding. So there you have humbly listening to the Word of God and the wisdom of the great tradition. Well, um, as someone who has taught church history for a very long time, um, I've never used the phrase the great tradition. Um, but I will remind you once again of, I believe it was Dr. Calhoun was his name. Um, I need to look, look that back up again. It's been many years, but he used to teach at Covenant Seminary, taught church history, and he would finish each class session with either a positive or a negative prayer, depending upon basically what the essence of what they had studied was. And sometimes you have to say things in church history that are not positive at all. Uh, and then sometimes uh, it, very positive things we can learn from. That's the, that's the essence of, of church history. And so can we uh, glean wisdom from those who have come before us? Yes, but I also think that one of the greatest um, 
sources of wisdom that we can come up with in looking at church history is looking back and seeing where in a in a subtle way people have gotten off a biblical track maybe for maybe for for reasons that we can literally say yeah um at that point in time given the pressures that were upon them we can understand why they would have seen things this way and now that we don't have the same pressures we can correct that but here's what happens you start off and let's say it was during a period of persecution and as a result there are people who suffer uh, become martyrs and their writings because they were a martyr now are elevated in their authority and it becomes almost unquestionable to almost unthinkable to question what they said and so what was a speculative idea that sounded good at the time due to what was going on becomes established as part of the tradition that can no longer be questioned and no matter what you do that results in the elevation of a particular individual's understanding to the level of scripture itself and that obviously is um where some of the real problems are i mean i've used as the example the fact that we know that augustine is deeply influenced by neoplatonism neoplatonism is not derived from scripture it is a metaphysical construct that would not be recognized by the prophets of old isaiah wouldn't recognize these things um and yet it has become elevated and established and for me and i think for anyone just reasoning along uh semper reformanda is a recognition that what we've been given in scripture is unchanging it's objective revelation from god and as worldviews change and metaphysical paradigms become popular and then unpopular and and of course when you're talking about greek metaphysics they you know their understanding of the world was just simply wrong in many many ways you know things aren't just made up of earth and fire and water and so on and so forth um and so we have to keep all those things in mind in being able to recognize when tradition has um, taken a role that it should not have. Just something I think to, to think about along those lines. Still hearing myself, I'm not sure why. It's, it's, it's like the thing over here uh, it, um, is really loud for some reason. I don't know why. Okay, so l- let me play a couple of things that uh, I agree with um, with Dr. Truman about um, that are that are perfectly valid and necessary to think about and good insights and, and things like that before we look at the any of the negative stuff. The first pathology, I think, is that we tend to be an anti-historical culture. There are various reasons for that. I actually think America is particularly prone to being anti-historical, partly because, and this sounds like a condescending comment of an Englishman about America, partly because you don't have a lot of history. And anybody who goes to Europe, um, you know, I've spent months and months in London over the years. I miss that place. I really, really do, though, seeing what's going on there, not quite as much as I would have in the past. Um, That's very true. And being on a new continent, of course, was important in saving the world from uh, the Nazis and things like that. But uh, being on a new continent, there, there isn't a lot of history. Um, our oldest buildings, our oldest monuments um, are childishly young in comparison to the United Kingdom or France or Russia or whatever. And as a result, there is... Um, 
a deep anti-historical strain. And, and I'm not sure of all the sources for it. And obviously, as one who's been teaching church history for decades now, I, I try to counteract that as best as possible. I, I try to tell people that church history is one of the, one of the few ways uh, that we can take a, a mirror to ourselves because Christians are Christians. And yes, we can be in different contexts and stuff, but we're seeing the building of Christ's kingdom. We're seeing the work of the Spirit of God. And um, there are many ways that we can... It's, it, in, in many ways, it's the only way that we can see ourselves. When, when we look at ourselves in our current context, we're just too close to see. But church history gives us an opportunity to sort of have some distance and to see the parallels and maybe to see ourselves in a, in a, in a more useful fashion. Um, but yeah, uh, in the United States, it is uh, something to have to overcome to try to get people outside the church or within the church uh, to consider history and to see our place in that history. Um, that is, that is a, a real truth. And what is critical theory? In some ways, it is a very anti-historical kind of phenomenon because what it does is it debunks the great historical narratives. Those great historical narratives which gave unity um, to the people of this nation. That's one of the true crimes of what's happening right now. The regime in Washington uh, is seeking to destroy the nation uh, by promoting and allowing uh, an invasion. If you know anything about um, immigration policy of 30, 40 years ago, then you know I'm definitely coming down with something again. Uh, it's wonderful. I just got over it and <clears throat> only have two weeks before I leave again and working on something again. Anyway, um, you know that one of the, you know, some of the requirements, <coughs> most American citizens who have their citizenship by birth could not pass the citizenship tests that people would have to go through. And one of the reasons that they had to read these things and things like that was to, we recognize there needs to be a common narrative. There needs to be, we need to be going the same direction. We need to have at least something of a common goal. And up until the last 25 years, we did. And so by encouraging um, the invasion of the United States, millions millions of people under the current regime um, and kudos to Governor Abbott um, you know Texas has the biggest border um, you know I hope they stand up and uh, tell the federal government to go take a hike um, something tells me that that'll eventually collapse too but I don't know that it's going to make any difference because New Mexico doesn't have a governor that's going to do anything Arizona doesn't even have a, I think a legitimate governor at all that's going to do anything. Um, and then California. So the invasion will continue even if it doesn't come through Texas. Um, and it's, a, it's just astonishing. I, I will not live to see the history of all of this written. But hopefully my great-grandchildren will read about it and uh, see the astonishing corruption that, that exists and allowed this to happen. Um, anyway, anyway, sorry, I sort of got off the topic there a little bit. But I think his comment stands as true for the general culture in which we live, and that is that there is an impatience with traditional liturgies. So he was talking about an Anglican, and um, there is an impatience with traditional liturgies. I, I think that's very true. I think it's very clear that um, many people in the church have the feeling that if it was done this way in the past, we need to do it differently now. Um, we need to separate ourselves from those who came before us. And in fact, I'm seeing a lot of this in many of these uh, young men, uh, some of the young Christian nationalists who have decided that uh, they're just going to blame everything on every generation that came before them. And so they, there's nothing they can learn from anyone older than them. 
And so it's it's go for the you know go for the novel and the new. Uh, ironically, many of them end up going for the old, thinking that it's novel. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit strange, but but there is a uh, an idea out there, and I think Dr. Truman's right about that. What religious freedom does is it tilts power towards the congregant. Now he he talked a lot about this. He expanded on it, and it was it was a very interesting portion of a relatively brief lecture. Um, I, I think this is. Uh, 55 minutes, and I included Barrett's introduction, so it may have only been 50 minutes long. And um, it is, you know, he does make the point. Now, what you're going to do with it, and how you how you roll with it, is is more up to you. But he does make the point that while you can believe the same things that were believed, say, in the year 1400, you don't believe them for the same reasons. Um, now, of course, part of that was if you believed them in 1400 and you dared to question those things, uh, you might find yourself tied to a stake and burned. Uh, there, there, there were a lot of, um, executions over the years, uh, along those lines that we don't really want to look back on and go, oh, that was great. We missed that. Um, I hope we don't, don't miss that, but that does impact things. That does impact um, how you believe, why you believe, and things like that. And as he goes on to talk about it, it, it influences the ecclesiology and church discipline and stuff like that. In a society where there are a variety of denominations and churches, the tilt is against ecclesiastical authority. Right. Uh, and then he illustrates that in this way. The third function, reclaiming the sinner, generally doesn't work. Why? Because the sinner can leave your church and go down the road to another church. Right. Um, first time I ever heard anyone do anything or say anything um, to address this reality was at PRBC when, in guarding the table, uh, we would ask if someone was under discipline from another church. And given the size, now, now at PRBC, we asked people to talk to the elders before they partook. Uh, at Apologia, we just make the part of the instructions before the supper. Uh, we say you do not have to be a member of our church to partake. You need to be a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. And if you are under discipline from a like-minded New Testament church, please not use our table to get around that discipline. Um, but that's just... Even that, let's just be honest, in the vast majority of evangelical churches, <laughs> no concept of a guarded table, uh, the importance of the supper, that kind of stuff just, just isn't there. So, um, yes, uh, that religious freedom does do all of those, those types of things. Uh, there is something toward the end here, real quick. And that's what makes the Incarnation that much more magnificent. It makes it both more mysterious, but also more magnificent. The more like man your God is, the less wonderful the Incarnation is likely to appear. Now, the reason I, I mentioned that, it was, it was at the end of a prayer from a mystical woman from like the 1300s or something, but um, the reason I mentioned that is... Our modern CCM, God is my boyfriend, girlfriend type music, does um, most definitely, I think, diminish. And, and, and the whole, look, I think we still have it. Um, we still have that rack of cassette tapes. And I think the first one, number 401 or whatever it was, uh, was the attributes of God. And so I remember that was recorded on Camelback. Um, we had that second room and we would have little get-togethers, conferences type things. I remember the night that I did that 
going over what would be clearly identified as classical theology. And so I, I fully get how important it is for Christians to be in awe of their God. Now, I believe the only way that awe will have transformative effect is if it is based upon submission to the truth of God as revealed in Scripture. Scripture is the shepherd speaking, and if our awe of God is actually based upon our having accomplished some kind of specific philosophical feat. I've thought through all this, and I've put this together with that, and together with, and now I've come to this that nobody else in my pew at church will ever be able to do. I don't think that that's lasting. I don't think that's transformative. I think when we see God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, that is lasting and that is transformative. Uh, I think that's extremely important. Um, so, with that, uh, I started with the positive stuff. But before we, we move to the negative stuff, uh, let me. This, this is interrupting everything, and I apologize for that. Um, but... By the way, Rich is playing with cameras. I, I just want you to know, if, if I end up looking off someplace else, it's because Rich is playing with cameras, and uh, we actually have three in here now. And so, just, just so you know, there's, there's Martin Luther down there. He wants to look in on, on stuff. Anyway, it's a good place to, to briefly pause. There's at least twice since we started um, in my... Now, I have my Twitter feed to where every two and a half minutes it um, refreshes and there's a little little baby um, that I'm sure at least some of you have seen um, in, in your feeds as well. Little Gus. Um... Received a heart transplant, it wouldn't start beating. There was only a certain amount of time that they could keep him going without that, and then it started beating, but it wasn't really beating properly, and there's been stuff today, and um, just a lot of us are are praying for little Gus, and so there's been some developments today. Um, we, we just want to continue praying for, for little Gus. I think, I don't know if putting little Gus in the search thing will bring anything up, but we definitely want to... Uh, <laughs> pray little guy and uh, that the Lord would uh, would be merciful to him. So we move to the negative stuff, uh, to the things where not necessarily negative, but where I, I need to have some kind of interaction with what Dr. Truman said. One of them is the appropriate emphasis upon scripture alone as an authority. And I think that's a good thing, the emphasis upon scripture alone. The way it is often played out, however, is not so much uh, in a way that the reformers would have understood, but combined with the anti-historical mentality of our culture, it has become iconoclastic. One could make the case that the reformers had, I would say, a hermeneutic of trust relative to church tradition. The church tradition had authority until it was proved to be wrong. I think the modern evangelical mentality has tended to be church tradition only has authority once it has been proved right. That is a difference in the imagination. It's a difference in the culture. It may not appear different on the page, but it represents a very, very different cultural pathology. Now, <clears throat> I'm not sure that the term cultural pathology is overuseful, but the issue is when you say proved right, by what standard <laughs> by what standard what what is what is going to cause what, what what's going to make give us this proof and we can spend a lot of time in it 
I could direct you to uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, Book 4, Chapter 9. There's a whole chapter in regards to relationship to councils and creeds. Um, but, and, and I, I'm considering once again in defense of Reformed Biblicism, especially because I, I didn't mark any of it out, but uh, Dr. Truman talks about having met Heiko Obermann once and, and things like that. I had the opportunity to sit in Dr. Obermann's home during a doctoral seminar after I graduated from Fuller. Um, and the subject was Calvin's response to Satelletto, which is one of the most important uh, documents in Reformation history. And so I, I had that opportunity. Anyway, um, Calvin... We, like I said, we may do the whole chapter, but but here's an important segment that I think is directly relevant to what is being discussed here. So again, Book 4, Chapter 9, Section 8, Paragraph 8, or Paragraphs 8. 4.9.8 What then? You ask, will the councils have no determining authority? Yes, indeed, for I am not arguing here either that all councils are to be condemned, or the acts of all to be rescinded, and, as the saying goes, to be canceled at one stroke. But, you will say, you degrade everything, so that every man has the right to accept or reject what the councils decide. Not at all. But whenever a decree of any council is brought forward, it should, like men, first of all, diligently to ponder at what time I should... Excuse me, I misread that. I should, like men... First of all, diligently to ponder at what time it was held. Now just hold on just one second. How many people even know? Calvin knew. He could expect that ministers in his day would know and would would have at least some semblance of, of information. And in reality, we... We have an overabundance of background information available to us today if we know where to look and if we care to try. But everybody who's ever taken church history from me knows. For example, what year was the Council of Nicaea? I'm looking at you. He's he's using... The fact that he's doing stuff as an excuse to avoid uh, <laughs> everybody who's ever taken church history from me knows on the final examination, one of the questions will be, what year was the Council of Nicaea? And so all you've got to do is just get that number memorized and you you can't fail completely. That's the important part. And it's 325. 325 A.D. Okay. How about the Council of Constantinople? That's when people start going, ah, nah, nah, nah. and I've used Constantinople as an example uh, because um, that wacky New Age chick whose name, whichever brain cell has been assigned storing her name, it's clearly close to the end of its useful life. <laughs> uh, out on a limb. What was her, what was, remember? Shirley MacLaine. That... The brain cell that stores the name Shirley MacLaine in my brain has a bad sector. I mean, if it was a hard drive, there's a bad sector there. And most people don't even know what a hard drive is anymore. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do remember. I, yeah, the, the, I remember who that guy was. He wrote Out on a Broken Limb. Um, anyway, Shirley MacLaine would run around telling people that the Bible used to teach reincarnation, but they took it out at the Council of Constantinople. Uh, everybody at the Council of Constantinople would be pretty shocked by that. But anyway, 381. And of course, 325, 381, 
um, you know, 56 years. Um, what happened during those 56 years? A lot happened during those 56 years. Most of that time period was the period of the Arian Resurgency, where the Arians took over the church, and it's Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, and he's kicked out of his church five times for refusing to compromise, and he's defending the, the Nicene symbol primarily by scriptural argumentation, I would point out to you if you've read Athanasius. Um, and so there's the context, and, and the context is Constantinople is reaffirming Nicaea, clarifying, expanding, and as, I'm not sure if, if, I, if I marked this, I'm pretty sure I did, um, but as we'll see from Dr. Truman, there's been a major development in Christology and in Trinitarian theology between 325 and 381. Um, I'll leave that to where, when he says that, we'll expand on it. The point is, you then get to Chalcedon, 70 years later, and the historical and political context, I didn't, didn't bring them in here, but I have four or five books, um, just in my library, simply on the historical background information on Chalcedon. And that's because there's, there's a lot of politics involved. Politics within the church, politics outside the church. And what Calvin's saying is, well, um, ponder at what time it was held. What was going on at that time? What were the issues? And if those are not the issues we're facing today, um, then what if we detect in the language of a symbol, of a creedal statement from a council, language that had a specific application at that time, but would be misleading now because things have changed and there's a different approach being taken. What do you do in that situation? Um, so he says, I, I should like men first of all diligently to ponder at what time it was held, on what issue. So <coughs> if the issue is over here, is it appropriate to take that language and apply it over here at another time in history? And that has happened many times. That's happened many, many times. Is that valid? Um, on what issue and with what intention? With what intention? What sort of men were present? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So when the monks are beating the snot out of each other at Ephesus, you know, when one side brings more monks to the battle than the other side, and that influences the result. Um, you think that's relevant? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's relevant. I think that's important. And when we look at the Council of Trent, now we don't see the you know Protestants don't see the Council of Trent as having any kind of ecumenical authority. But one thing's for sure: when you look at it. I'd like to know. I mean, April of 1546, Council of Trent, is when Rome gives its first dogmatic definition of the canon. First time, 1546. Who made those decisions? Uh, we know that one of the draft resolutions at the Council of Trent in, used the partum partum language revelation takes is found partly in the oral and partly in the written but that's not what's in the final who did that who said partum partum who objected don't know 
be nice to know, be useful to know. But for most councils, we don't have any earthly idea. Don't you think that might be important? Yeah. yeah. Um, what sort of member president? Then to examine by the standard of Scripture what it dealt with. This is John Calvin. This is John Calvin. To examine by the standard of Scripture what it dealt with, and to do this in such a way that the definition of the council may have its weight and be like a provisional judgment, yet not hinder the examination which I have mentioned. Now, Calvin thought all this through. You know he thought all this through. You know that as a young man, when he first wrote the Institutes, now this is from the 1559 Latin, but you know, over 20 years earlier when he had first written it, he had to be thinking these things through. And my concern is, we haven't thought these things through for a long time. And my hope and my prayer is that our current set of controversies will force everybody to think through these things the way that Calvin did. Because, notice what he says, and to do this, that is to examine the conciliar statement by Scripture so that the definition of the council may have its weight, so if it's not a biblical conclusion, it shouldn't have weight, and be like a provisional judgment, yet not hinder the examination which I have mentioned. So in other words, all that stuff, what were they talking about? Who was there? What, what, what prompted all this? Because you see, when you think about it, if you... If you elevate these conciliar statements to the point of being the, the lens through which you now examine Scripture, and we've seen people do Rome does it every day. Rome does it every day. That, that's, a, that's a past tense. They started doing that a long, long time ago, and all the Marian dogmas and everything else are dependent upon that relationship of tradition over scripture. But when you see self-professing Protestants do this, that's when I go, hey, everybody wake up. Look what's happening here. Come on, think, think. And what Calvin is saying is, however we look at that council, it cannot, its, its statements cannot hinder the examination which I've previously mentioned, we, we need to always be able to look at these things and always be able to, you know, if, if we are saying this is an, this creedal statement, Nicaea, is absolutely necessary to hold to, then what should be the most important demonstration of that for us? It's biblical nature. It's biblical nature. It is an accurate statement, not of something new, but of something old, that which is revealed in Scripture. And that's, that's what this is all about. That, that's what I've been banging the drum about and being willing to be bad-mouthed and canceled by all sorts of folks that I used to hang around with all the time. Because we've got to, to go there. And notice what he says. Next, next section of section 8. Would that all kept that moderation which Augustine enjoins in the third book against Maximinus. When he wishes to silence in a few words this heretic, he was an Arian, 
contending over the decrees of councils, he says, quote, now you've heard me, I've quoted this in numerous different translations over the years, but here's what Calvin gives. I ought not to throw up against you the council of Nicaea, nor you against me the council of Riminum, as prejudging the matter. For I am not subject to the authority of the second, nor you to that of the first. Let matter contend with matter, cause with cause, reason with reason, by scriptural authorities, not those peculiar to either one, but those common to both. So, here, Augustine is seeking to correct Maximum the Arian. And he says, I can't quote Nicaea to you. And you can't quote Arimanum to me. Let's go to Scripture. Let's go to what is common to both. Which means what? Which means Augustine believes that what Nicaea said is, and its, and its fundamental truth content is because it accurately represents Scripture. That's why Nicaea II, the second Nicene Council, long afterwards, 8th century, long after Nicaea, that's where you have veneration of icons and so on and so forth. When you read the proceedings of that council, and at least, you know, it's, it's reflective. I'm not going to get through much of this today. It's reflective of how much the church has changed. That we have almost nothing about the proceedings of the Council of Nicaea. Almost everything we get from that, we get from Eusebius, we get from Athanasius, it's in passing, it's in letters, stuff like that. They didn't think it was important enough to be recording all this stuff. By the time you get to Second Nicaea, we've got sermons and all sorts of stuff that's being delivered. The exegetical content of the argumentation for the veneration of icons is laughable. It is laughable. It is Gale Ripplinger-ish. It's that bad. It's that bad. And so, Calvin and the rest of us are being consistent to not grant authority to Nicaea too. But the Orthodox are going to look at us, the Roman Catholic would look at us and go, you're being inconsistent. You grant authority to Nicaea 1, but not to Nicaea 2. Why? And we better know why. And we better have a meaningful response as to why. And the why is what Nicaea teaches about the relationship, the Father and the Son, primarily, is what it's about, we're not talking about the canons and decrees. Even there, even there, we have to reject the canons and decrees of the Council of Nicaea because they represent an ecclesiology that's unbiblical. So we're already being biblicists when we accept the Nicene symbol, the creed, but not the canons and decrees, which the folks at Nicaea would not have looked upon in a positive way. Okay? But what we're saying is, the content of the creedal statement of Nicaea is binding and has dogmatic authority because of the depth and accuracy of its representation of biblical revelation. It all comes back, if it's going to be binding on the Christian conscience, it all has to come back to that. It has to come back to what God has said. That is what it must be. And that's what Calvin is saying. Now, if you're going to call what I just said about the biblical foundation of creedal statements, Neo-Socinianism, then Calvin was a Neo-Socinian? I'm, I'm reading him directly. I'm not giving you some scholar over here who thinks this and some scholar. I'm reading you Calvin directly. His words are understandable. What Augustine said to Maxwell the Arian was also understandable. And maybe that's what scares people about us is that we just go to the people 
the pastors and the people in the pews and go, here, here's, here's what's really, what's really happening. Here's what's really being said. So, uh, yeah, there you go. We'll, we'll, we'll get to a little bit more here, but we will definitely need to be continuing this, um, in the future. I think also because evangelicalism has tended to have a deep suspicion of what I would call speculative language as well. Probably, as I use the language of speculative, some of you will immediately have reacted negatively to that language. That's a sign of the culture I'm talking about. When you read the patristic fathers, when you read the medievals, when you read the reformers and see what they're actually doing and saying, there is a lot of what we might now call speculative language involved in what they do. I think we live in a world where abstractions, speculative abstractions, are typically regarded with suspicion. And in that kind of a world, in that kind of a world, the creeds and especially the confessions, I think, will come under serious pressure. I have to ask what he means by speculative. Now, I I have serious problems with speculative theology. What do I identify as speculative theology? Speculative theology is where you go beyond what Scripture addresses. Calvin, likewise, had problems with speculative theology. And illustration I've given, I think it's perfectly valid, haven't had anyone demonstrate any problems with it, but your the headlights on your vehicle only go so far forward. And if you've ever stopped your vehicle on a very, very dark highway, um, no road lights, nothing like that, and you may have even the brights on, and then you walk in front of your vehicle. You get out there, and it, it doesn't take you all that long till you're starting to get a little bit concerned about what your footing's going to be. It's difficult to see. Things are getting darker and darker. Shadows getting longer and longer. Um, you know, you still be able, might be able to find something out there, but the lights only go so far. And... Scripture functions in that way for us. So there are what we would call first-order truths, where Scripture says this, and Scripture says that, and therefore when you put those two together, this must be this here. This is the conclusion of that. Okay? And you can do that for a number of different issues. So when Scripture identifies Jesus, you know, they, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We can properly go, hey, wait a minute, Lord of glory, that's, that's language of deity. And you can't crucify deity. So the crucifixion is being applied to the physical incarnation, but we have one, one person who's the Lord of glory, but he's also crucified. Well, that's, that's the hypostatic union. That's, that's the big argument into the 4th century, and beyond, even to today in some ways, of the relationship between the divine and human Christ. Does Scripture teach there is divine and human in Christ? Yes. So how do we understand that? And we can go so far. We can say, well, Eutychianism didn't do it, because that mixes God and man together, and you end up with a demigod. That's, that's, that's not going to do it. And Nestorianism, as later centuries at least, would understand it. That can't do it, because then Jesus isn't truly incarnate. Um, and Apollinarianism doesn't do it, because he's no longer truly man. But we're still looking at first-order truths. We're putting them together on a second level, and maybe a third. Maybe that's about as far as we can go. Here's the problem. People don't want to stop there. People don't want to stop there. Calvin, I'm sure, in his quieter moments, speculated 10 stops down the road. But he was the wise one to say, where Scripture stops speaking, we need to stop speaking. He, he saw that if you want to stay on solid ground, 
then you need to recognize that God has only given us the ability to address certain questions. There are people in this world that will ask questions until the cows come home. They will never be satisfied with any limitation from God. They never will. I, I know I can see the faces <laughs> of the many people I've met over the years that will never be satisfied. But the problem is, you go down that road, there's no stopping. There just isn't any stopping. Um, and so, speculative theology is a dangerous area. Because once you get out there at the very end of those headlights, you know, there can be um, rabbit holes and all sorts of stuff. You fall down and break your ankles and do everything else out there because you don't have light anymore. And you may be tempted then to replace the light coming from Scripture with the light coming from someplace else. And the results will not be good for the church, for the people of Christ, and you will end up teaching things that the apostles never dreamed of. Here's a test, and we'll, we'll pick up at this point. I'll find some way of marking where we are. But here's a test. I am not saying, and, and this could come up in some of the language, because he actually used a, an appropriate um, distinction. I am not saying that there is no room for development in the expression of divine truth. Divine truth is intended to be communicated to all people at all times and hence is communicable. That's different than the development of doctrine of Newman, Newman's development theory, where you can have the bodily assumption of Mary defined, which was plainly, inarguably unknown, not only to the apostles, but to the early church. It's just, it's just complete novelty. And so, to define something like that, or to define papal infallibility, or the Immaculate Conception, these require development not of something that pre-existed. This is, this is a new revelation. Let's just be honest, that's, that's what it involves. Rome says no, but it's just obvious. So, the question I think should always be asked is, not did the apostles teach it in this language. No. But would they recognize their teaching if they were to encounter this? I believe the apostles would recognize the hypostatic union if they were to encounter it and hear it explained and how it was derived from the pages of Scripture from the words, from their very words. The question is, where do you draw that line? How far do you go? How many definitions based upon Plato or Aristotle, how far can you go before the apostles are going to go, what are you talking about? I have no idea where you're going with this. That, that's, that's not what I was trying to communicate there. I never said anything about this. Where's that line? And are we even allowed to ask? Are we even allowed to ask without being canceled or blocked or called a Neo-Sassinian or something like that? Um, those are the questions we're asking. So I'm going to mark a block here with some color I didn't use. There we go. And that'll tell me where we get started. That's, that's actually rather useful. The question is, will this program work on Thursday? <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, 
see, the last time I tried to use this program, it's a wonderful program. Audio note taker is what it's called. No matter what we tried, resetting computers, we, we did everything. And it would, it would only play the sound through the speakers of the laptop. It wouldn't send it to the HDMI, which is what's feeding well, the camera that I'm on right now. I think it's the cam. No, this, this goes through that camera I'm on right now. Okay. This is going a different direction. So, um, there are a lot of wires around here, uh, and we could not figure out, and I've just not used the program since then. The program has not updated. We fire everything up today. Worked fine. I don't know. <laughs> and that's how I say, we'll see on Thursday. <laughs> it may, may not work. I don't know. Well, I, all I know is right now, I feel fine, but my throat doesn't. <laughs> I almost feel like, well, let's get it done now so we're not going to be doing it on the trip. But I just had that three-week lung stuff. So this must be something else, I guess. Ugh. So I, I may sound like my uh, long-distant cousin, Barry White. Uh, on the next program. Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll find out. But thanks for listening to the program today. Hopefully it was uh, thought-provoking for you. We'll see you next time. God bless. Mm-hmm.